I've heard over and over again now that the mental health crisis we are experiencing will be the next pandemic. If you feel anxious, isolated, or depressed, know that you're not alone. Mental health isn't something we talk openly about. It's stigmatized and uncomfortable to discuss, and too many of us suffer in silence. Our mental health influences the quality of our day-to-day lives, how we cope with loss and grief, manage stress, and so much more. It's time we start paying as much attention to our brains as we do our bodies. In today's episode, I'm joined by a panel of experts in the field of brain health and psychiatry. We discuss the mental health crisis and how we can help ourselves and others fight for healthier brains so we can live more fulfilling lives. This conversation features Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Robin Smith, Amy Marin, and Jonas Koffler. These mental health experts are incredibly well-known in the field and are best-selling authors. Dr. Daniel Amen is one of America's leading psychiatrists and brain health experts. Dr. Robin Smith is known for her role as the on-air therapist for The Oprah Winfrey Show. And Amy Marin is a psychotherapist and the editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind. And lastly, Jonas Koffler is an entrepreneur and writer whose ventures include digital health and mental wellness startups, Lada Labs, and Radical Wellness Incorporated. These panelists have a ton of ideas on destigmatizing the conversation of mental health, how we can bring mental health to the forefront, and what the future of mental health care may be. I'm super excited to share this conversation, and this is a highlight episode from a previous Clubhouse Live that was presented by Talkspace back in May of 2021. I'll put all the relevant links, including the panelists' books, in the show notes. Remember, the battle to destigmatize mental health starts with us. Thanks for joining us on this important conversation, and without further ado, enjoy my amazing conversation with Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Robin Smith, Amy Marin, and Jonas Koffler. Over the past year, I've talked about mental health a lot on my podcast, given the current situations. And a lot of my guests have mentioned that mental illness is the next pandemic that we need to tackle after coronavirus. So can somebody on the panel give some stats and shed some color in terms of the breadth of the problem when it comes to mental health around the world? So if anybody wants to kick the, oh, Dr. Robin is here. So Dr. Robin, I'm going to kick it to you. I know you just joined, but I know you have an opinion on this topic. So how would you describe the state of mental health in the world? And then anybody else who wants to contribute to this, flash your mic and I'll kick it over to you afterwards. So Dr. Robin, take it away. Yes, thanks, Hala. I'm really glad to be here with you and in this room, your room. And uh, it's such an important question that you're asking. It's bigger than in some ways, and it's older, it's more ancient than COVID-19. I mean, COVID-19 came, it feels like out of nowhere. And we know it harmed many people and lives. And I know it personally touched your life as well, Hala. But mental illness and really struggling with emotional distress is ancient. It is something that has been going on since the beginning of time. And it's also something that has been underreported. It has been hidden because of shame and blame. And so this is a new era. Uh, When you say that, you know, mental illness is the next pandemic, it's just actually the pandemic that we have refused to take seriously. 
I couldn't agree more. I'm going to quickly just rattle off some mental health stats, and then we'll kick it over to some of the other panelists. So 450 million people currently suffer from mental illness, according to the World Health Organization. One in four Americans currently suffer at least one mental illness, and that concurs with the rest of the world based on my research. Amy, I know that you conducted a study at Very Well. If you want to go over the results of your mental health study, that'd be great. Yeah, at Very Well Mind, we did some research. We uh, reached out to about 4,000 people in the United States to sort of get the pulse of how people are dealing with the pandemic and the aftermath and now that the restrictions are starting to lift. And what we found is that it's really the younger generation that is struggling the most. It's Gen Z who is up to about age 24. And that's the population that seems to be experiencing the most symptoms of depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal thoughts. And it seems to be that their biggest sources of stress right now are financial concerns, concerns about work. So we're looking at people who are just getting done with high school, just getting done with college. They're entering into the world and they're struggling right now. And during the pandemic, there's been so much focus on say their grandparents and their physical health of the older generations. But I think it's so important right now to pay attention to the mental health of the younger generations and to think more about how affected they have been by this and how this whole year is a huge proportion of their lives in comparison to say somebody who's 50 when you're 24 and you and weren't able to do anything for an entire year, that's a big deal. And we're seeing the aftermath of that. And I think we're going to see it for quite a while. In fact, we found that within the last two weeks, almost 30% of Americans say that they felt down, depressed, or hopeless. 28% said that they feel bad about themselves. And 21% reported thoughts of self-harm or thoughts of suicide. And again, it was highest for uh, Gen Z. Really, really interesting stuff. My next question is for Dr. Daniel Amen, and I want to understand how you define mental illness and what are some of the most common mental illnesses people suffer from? Well, as I said before, I'm not a fan of the term mental illness. I think it shames people. It's stigmatizing, and it's wrong. There are brain health issues that steal people's minds. I have a book I wrote about this called The End of Mental Illness. People just get it when I talk about it this way, that everybody wants a better brain. Nobody wants to be called mental. So being called mental is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It shames people. Being called a brain is a good thing. Everybody wants to sort of be being called a brain. Now, if you look at, so what are the most common brain health, mental health issues people have? Number one, it's anxiety disorders. Before the pandemic, 30% of the population endorsed that they would have one of the anxiety disorders like generalized anxiety, panic disorder, OCD, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the group of anxiety disorders are the most common. Before the pandemic, a lot of people were suffering. That number likely doubled. The second one is depression in all of its forms. But I say depression sort of like fever, right? Doctors used to give you the diagnosis of fever. Nobody does that anymore because fever doesn't tell you what's causing it or what to do for it. I think depression is exactly the same way, but it affects a lot of people. Third are people struggle with ADHD, 
attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also called ADD. And then addictions are common. Insomnia and sleep issues often revolve around mental health, brain health issues. And then things like bipolar disorder, which I think is one of the current fads in psychiatry. It's like everybody sort of gets a diagnosis of bipolar too. Did that answer your question? Yes, 100%. It more than did. And duly noted on brain health and mental health instead of calling it mental illness. I just wanted to say something as I'm listening to all of this. Dr. Robin here. I think it's important as we are talking about the brain and the mind to remember that there are many people in this room right now, and they may not know all of the technical terms that some of us are aware of, but what they do know is they know suffering and they know joy. And I think it's really important to really talk about normalizing, not pathologizing. So to normalize struggle, to normalize suffering, to normalize the ways in which we are all trying to make meaning out of very challenging and difficult situations and circumstances and relationships. And I think that when we have an appointment with someone, and maybe it's, you know, for the dentist, and we might say to someone, oh, I need to, you know, get off this call. I'm I have to get to the dentist, Um, you know, I'm getting my teeth cleaned or I'm going to, you know, get my eyes examined. We don't feel that same kind of comfort because we've not had good role modeling and not good examples around what it means. And that's why what Dr. Amen is talking about is really so very, very important to understand the difference and you know from you know talking with me that i don't use the word mental illness because i think it not only does it uh, mislead people and shame people it also is such a hopeless term and it can make people feel helpless as well but if we have more examples of people who say i have to go right now because i have you know my partner and I have couples therapy or my children and I have therapy, that it's so important that we teach by what we are actually doing ourselves as healers. One of the things that is so important about the brain, we think of brainwashing as being negative, you know, that someone has brainwashed you. We don't think about how important it can be and helpful to find ways of washing the brain from toxic and destructive and limiting beliefs about the self and about others. And so this invitation tonight, as I see it, for all of us healers and those who are in the room, is to feel encouraged tonight, to feel inspired. And it is hard work, but I always tell people that it is also very hard, painful work to remain defeated and suffering. It's just that we are more familiar with that than we are at being liberated. And so I just am inviting each of us to feel the hope in 
what everyone is talking about tonight for your individual life and circumstance. And so I'm grateful that we gathered tonight and hope that each of us in the room is applying this to how it impacts us individually, the people in our homes, and then, of course, collectively as a tribe and village in the world. Amazing, inspirational information for everybody tuning in. You always are inspiring and motivating, and and thank you so much for that. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. 
claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to pivot back to COVID. So COVID, for a lot of you guys on the panel do know me uh, pretty well. And a lot of you guys, we haven't met before. You might be coming on my show in the future, but we really haven't gotten a chance to talk. And if you do know me, you probably know that my father passed away from COVID last May. And I got, actually his anniversary was of his passing was this past Saturday a one year anniversary. And I caught COVID because I was taking care of him and my whole family got sick. And we were one of the first families I feel like that I knew at least, and all my friends knew and in New Jersey who got impacted. I feel like I was like one of the first families that got impacted. So it was a really scary time and I'm not alone. There's so many people who have suffered from grief, 3 million lost souls all over the world. And to make matters worse, not only losing someone, but then not being able to visit them in the hospital for me was really traumatic. And I just want to talk about grief. And I know that Amy, Dr. Robin, I'm sure other of you guys on the panel talk about grief and how to overcome trauma. I'd like to pivot to Amy. I know you talk about this quite a lot. Can you explain the difference between healthy grief and unhealthy self-pity and kind of what you recommend that we do for those of us who are suffering from grief due to COVID and due to any, any reasons that we would suffer grief? Absolutely. So my experience with grief is not just as a therapist, but it's also personal. I lost my mom uh, when I was 23. And then when I was 26, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And shortly after that, I lost my father-in-law and realized quickly that knowing about grief is one thing, but going through the emotions and the pain is just uh, having the head knowledge doesn't always do it. Grief is the process by which we heal and you have to go through the pain. And there's no timeline for grief that so often people will think you should feel better in six months or there's the magical one year mark, but that's not the case. And that grief often comes in waves. You might be fine one minute and the next minute you're in the grocery store looking at something that reminds you of your loved one and you might suddenly burst into tears. And, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you haven't healed or that you aren't grieving the right way. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. And for us to just be aware of that and to know that it's, it's okay to ask for help. It's important to talk to people and really pay attention to, to our emotions. There's so much power in just naming how you're feeling and to not judge yourself for those emotions. So whether you feel guilty, you feel incredible pain and sadness, or you feel intense anxiety, just taking some time and honoring and noticing those feelings goes a long way towards helping us feel better. And then knowing that it's okay to feel those things, but also you don't want to stay stuck in a place of pain. And that it's important to have healthy coping strategies, which could be anything from knitting to exercising to painting, just knowing what kinds of things help me express experience and cope with these difficult feelings that I have. Yeah, 100%. And Dr. Robin, you are known as being the trauma surgeon of the heart and soul. So I'd love your thoughts on all the grief that's going on and, and what we can do to overcome it. Yeah, thanks, Hala. So one of the things when I think about trauma and what I know about grief and loss and trauma is that a part of what makes it even more difficult are the rules and let's call the regulations that other people or we ourselves 
try to abide by. So we have a timeline or our job has a timeline or we read somebody's book that talked about, you know, a timeline and how they went back to work or they started dating or after six months or, you know, a year and a half. And so you figure, okay, if I'm, you know, if I'm okay, then I can do that as well. And so one of the things that is so important as it relates to COVID, but just grief and loss in general, is that there really are not any rules other than what your own heart dictates in terms of what it needs. And a lot of that requires slowing down. I mean, slowing down even right here, right now in this room and asking yourself this very bold and brave question, which is what does my ache need? Rumi, the great you know, writer and thinker and philosopher, um, has a quote that I love, and I think it fits so well here, that the wound, W-O-U-N-D, the wound is the place where light enters. And so often, we are covering our wounds up and we're ashamed of our wounds and we're trying to get our wounds, you know, into gear. You know, people will, if you hear when I do, you know, my clubhouse events um, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the East, people often will call and if they begin to cry, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. And I'll say, what are you sorry for? And isn't it interesting that when we, when our tears show up, and I believe our tears are our teacher, that we apologize for our humanity. So a piece of what this moment is offering is that we really lean, and I mean lean all the way in to what it means to be fully human, and that is to have losses. And, you know, as we've heard each person share that sometimes it's the birthday or the anniversary, but sometimes it's not connected to anything in particular, except for that your heart aches. Or how about the times where someone feels joy and then they feel guilty? Like, am I allowed to smile? Am I allowed to ever laugh again after, you know, the death and the loss of someone who suffered and died alone in COVID, when we think about what happened to, you know, so many people in COVID. And Hala, I know you've shared about this, people who had to say goodbye to their loved ones over a device, over FaceTime, and where physicians were serving as priests and rabbis simply because family members could not, were not allowed into the hospitals. But I want to caution all of us and those who are suffering tonight with grief and loss and trauma. You know, you may have thought that, you know, your best friend is going to always be there and understand. And every time you talk to him or every time you talk to her, you leave feeling disappointed, like they didn't get it. You know, they didn't get it or my sister's not getting it. And so what I really want to encourage you to do is pay attention to that part of you that feels that somebody is missing your grief and sorrow because it's sacred and you don't want to share it with anyone who isn't able or willing or doesn't have the capacity to hold it and hold you in ways that really are constructive 
and nurturing and soft and tender in such a tough time. So don't grandfather anyone into being close to you unless they have earned the right to walk with you and next to you. That was beautiful, Dr. Robin. Thank you so much for your thoughts. I'm going to pivot to Dr. Daniel Amen. So we're in a back channel and Dr. Daniel Amen just mentioned that he actually lost his father on May 5th. So 10 days before mine and he had a virtual funeral. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and also about mental discipline. If you can define that for everyone and tell us why it's so important. Well, it's really mental discipline that helped me get through his loss. I had a hard relationship with my dad. When I told him I wanted to be a psychiatrist in 1979, he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor, why I wanted to be a nut doctor and hang out with nuts all day long. So he's a Middle Eastern father who was hard. And the last five years of his life, though, he was my best friend. He had a health challenge, never listened to me. And when he listened to me, he lost 40 pounds, helped his heart heal, and we became super close. So his death was very hard for me. But what I talk to my patients about is mental discipline needs to be the same as physical discipline, that if you want a healthy body, you have to make thousands of decisions over and over and over again. You cannot be 50 pounds overweight on Monday. Have a salad for lunch and expect to be trim on Friday, right? That's insane. You need habits that you put in your life every day that help you. And I have a new book out called Your Brain is Always Listening. I talk about something called positivity bias training. So many of my patients who struggle with anxiety, depression, trauma, grief, who have high ACE scores, and it would be good for us to talk about the ACE test, which is adverse childhood experiences, because people who score it, score it on a scale of zero to 10, and people who score over four die earlier than people who are under four. They have an increased risk for seven of the top 10 leading causes of death. And my wife has a score of eight. My nieces who we adopted both have nines. And so that trains your nervous system to be hypervigilant and to always watch for bad things to happen. But my wife and my nieces who live with me are all doing awesome because we work on mental discipline. So I start every day with today is going to be a great day. Soon as my feet hit the floor. And if I forget, it's on the top of my to-do list. That way, my unconscious mind will start finding what I'm looking forward to today, hanging out with my friends and doing this tonight, rather than just what the brain naturally does is look for what's a threat, what's wrong, especially if you grew up in trauma. As I go through my day, I go, is this good for my brain or bad for it? Which is actually the mother tiny habit. It's the most important tiny habit you can do because if you love your brain, you start making better decisions for it. And before I go to bed at night, 
I always put myself to sleep with a prayer. And then I go, what went well today? And I've been doing this for years. And the day my dad died was an awful day. I was actually in my bathroom getting ready to take him to the pulmonologist because he just wasn't getting better from COVID. And he'd been two months since he had it. And then I got a call from my mom. You know, it's like a nightmare that he stopped breathing. What does she do? She's on the phone. I'm calling 911, driving to the, I mean, it was a mess. And so when I went to bed that night, because it is my habit, I said a prayer and then I went, what went well today? And then the supervising part of me, you know, I always have this great technique I learned from my friend Stephen Hayes, give your mind a name so you can psychologically distance from it. Well, my mind is named after my pet raccoon when I was 16. Her name was Hermie. Well, Hermie starts like yelling at me like you're a bad son because you're going to go really on the worst day. Of your life in 38 years, you're going to go, what went well today, right? So the critical part of my mind is getting after me. And then I just remembered the hundreds of texts I got from my friends. Because when you're from a big Lebanese family, everybody knows some, something good or bad happens literally within three minutes. And um, there was just such an outpouring of love for my dad and for me. And then my brain went to... Before the mortuary took him away, I sat with him and just held his hand. And it was just so soft. And then I went to sleep because mental wellness is a practice. It's not something, and, you know, we actually have, right now we have a 30-day happiness challenge. So people can sign up for it. It's free, 30dayhappinesschallenge.com. And what we do is just these little tiny habits to put in your life to optimize your brain, your mind, your relationships, and your soul, which is ultimately why do you care, living each day with purpose. And we need to talk about this just like people talk about losing weight or getting cardiovascularly fit. And it's a new direction, right? I'm not treating your depression. I'm optimizing your brain. I'm optimizing your mind. I'm optimizing your relationships and ultimately your deepest sense of meaning and purpose. So I hope that's helpful. I love actionable advice on Young and Profiting podcasts. So learning from your personal experience and how you dealt with your father's deaths through mental discipline is, is so interesting to learn about. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Hey, AppFam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full-time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You gotta beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So the next topic I want to talk about is a little controversial and it's on the topic of medication and psychedelics because I think there's a couple schools of thoughts when it comes to this. Dr. Caroline, I know that you have a strong stance on this topic and I also know that Dr. Carlene and Dr. Owen are proponents of psychedelics. So why don't we start with Dr. Owen? We didn't really hear much from you. What is your stance on psychedelics and how have you used psychedelics in this space and what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's not, I think, just psychedelics we're talking about. It's effective interventions in psychiatry for 30 years. And this is quoting my friend Dan Carlin, who's now the chief medical officer at MindMed. When he was working at Pfizer, they worshipped at the altar of 50% better, 
right? And so the standard by which all of our SSRIs and other antidepressants, for example, are judged is a 50% reduction in symptoms. Now, I have very few patients who come to me and say, I'd like to feel halfway better. Um, but most of them want to be in remission. They don't want to be suffering tremendously, which people who are coming to me are on average. And so when we're thinking about psychedelic medicines, we're not talking about getting high and going to a fish concert. That's a different intention. We're talking about evidence-based treatments and the studies that have been coming out are remarkable. So for example, MAPS came out with a study just last week on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, which, by the way, the Cochrane review of all the prior available treatments only has venlafaxine as an effective treatment for. That is accepting, of course, for psychotherapy like NIDI does with EMDR and other modalities. But not everyone can tolerate those therapies. The dropout rates are very high. We had an effect size of, you know, above 0.9. That's better than any medication for any condition in all of psychiatry with the exception of, you know, stimulants and ADHD. So we're talking about an order of magnitude difference in how potent these interventions can be. And so I think the only controversy in my mind is like, how are we going to deploy these at scale? And how are we going to get them paid for so people have access to them and not just the wealthy right? People who desperately need these treatments, because as Nitty can talk about, adverse childhood experiences are extremely common, especially among kids who I was seeing when I worked at Bellevue and in the state hospital system. And they're the kinds of people who are going to need interventions that work. And I think that's what psychedelics, I hope, will prove to be. Interesting. Dr. Daniel Amen, do you have any alternate thoughts on this? Or, or Nitty, do you want to chime in? Well, I'm hopeful, but, you know, people were super hopeful about cocaine and Freud used cocaine and they were super hopeful about opiates and I'm hopeful and I want to see more research. I have actually done some before and after studies with Ibogaine, which is a psychedelic and for some people, it was really helpful. For other people, it wasn't. And it seemed to really drop the function in their brain. So lots of people are getting on the bandwagon. I just want to see more research on large groups of people. But, you know, whatever we use, I'm a huge fan of plant medicine. I own a supplement company. I love saffron. Saffron head-to-head -head against Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft. Effects or amipramine was shown to be equally effective. And Dr. Owen pointed it out, right? Equally effective may not be that effective. What we're not talking about, although one of us mentioned it earlier, is why aren't we doing like the really simple things first, like diet and exercise? I mean, exercise head to head against Prozac and Zoloft was found to be equally effective exercise, fish oil, um, great nutrients. Let's start there, learning, teaching people on scale not to believe every stupid thing they think. I call it killing the ants, the automatic negative thoughts. And once you've done those things, once you've really worked to optimize your brain, your mind, your relationships, your purpose, and you're still suffering, then medication and perhaps TMS 
can be really helpful. I'm a huge fan of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And, you know, my experience with psychedelics and my patients, it's not as effective as I would like. I mean, I have great success stories with ketamine, but it seems like about 20% of people I've sent for ketamine get a lasting positive response. So I, I think we should all be scientists. And what that means is we should all be curious. Being scientific doesn't mean diminishing other people and dismissing other things. Being scientific just means I'm curious. Show me the evidence and let me test it for myself. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniel. That was super great insights. It looks like Jonas has something to add. Jonas, I'll kick it over to you. Great. Thanks, Hala. I want to build on what Daniel was speaking to and Owen as well. And Yidi, look, I think the evidence overwhelmingly is positive, And I think it's good to be cautiously optimistic. I also think it's very clear that directionally, we are on the verge of a new frontier in terms of revolutionary approaches to integrating plant-based healing modalities. And clearly part of that is going to be by leveraging psychedelics. There's no question about it. The research is there, but we definitely need to figure out how to scale it and how to scale it safely. But I also want to say this, that the healing journey is, is you know, we can look at the, the data and that's objective, but it's also very subjective. And that the pieces that we're talking about here are really mapping to an integrative approach to a lifestyle that is based on health and wellness and well-being. And it is optimizing how we orient to the possibilities that are low cost and accessible to everyone. So talk therapy, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, that is certainly one path. Nutritional well-being and making better choices about what we put into our body such that we can function at a higher level is critically important. Exercise, you know, the big, my big premise, and one of the things I'm focused on in my new book is this idea that, you know, we have to do things that actually move us. And the movement itself will drive us toward health, physically, mentally, emotionally, in terms of resilience and so forth. But all of these things, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, relational, nutritional, spiritual, they all tie into our integrative whole as a human. And so I think for those who are, you know, again, listening in and in despair, please know that, you know, you have to look at your life as a whole spectrum and you are by no means, uh, your identity is tied to the affliction that you're dealing with, whether it's anxiety or depression or poor diet. You know, so please be mindful that and know that that you can change and that the, the opportunity for you to change is, it can be very, very simple. And it could start with just getting a good night's sleep. Whether it's practicing habits and mental discipline like Dr. Daniel Amen, changing the language around mental and brain health, or simply reminding yourself that there's no right way to overcome trauma and grief, there's a lot you can start doing today to help your brain stay healthy and even help those around you on their mental health journey. Remember, destigmatizing mental health starts with leading by example. And if you want to listen to the full uncut Yap Live, it was released on May 21st and is called Yap Live Conquering Invisible Enemies. Let us know how you're implementing these techniques in your life. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search my name. It's Hala Taha. DM me and tell me what you thought about this episode or drop us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Let's keep the conversation going. We'll catch you next time. This is Hala signing off.